Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. So we'll be continuing in Isaiah. Jonathan preached last week from Isaiah 7, and Tim will be able to continue our series in Isaiah by going back to 9 next Sunday, and we can enjoy this uh, wonderful uh, prophetic uh, book in God's Word. So Isaiah chapter 11, uh, pray with me as we come to God's Word. O Lord, since our whole salvation depends on our understanding of your Word, give us light to our eyes and give us perception to our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit who reveals Christ. For without Christ, how can we know the Father? So we pray, O Lord, that you would not leave us in the dark, but you would enlighten our minds, you'd give us understanding, that we can know your precepts and know your word, and in them we can find refuge and find life. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Amen. Starting verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity, For the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah. From the four corners of the earth, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead his people across. In sandals. 
And there will be a highway from Assyria, from the remnant that remains of his people as there was from Israel when they came from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. One of the most well-known passages in all the Bible, almost every English-speaking person, if not every person that has access to the Bible in their own language, knows 1 Corinthians 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. We hear so much about love and fight over what it means to be loving. You can't say that. It would be unloving to say that, or you, you can't not say it. It would be unloving not to say something, and you might fight over what it means even to be loving. But if we start at the cross, we can begin to know what love is. But I'm not going to talk about love this morning. I'm going to talk about hope. Uh, love will last, it will remain forever. Uh, but hope is one of those great three words of faith and love. The whole book of Isaiah is really about hope. Part of why we're preaching through it this December. And the whole book of Isaiah is really condensed right into chapter 11. There's 66 books in the Bible, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons to love this book and want to study this book. And even in my studying, I found out that the early church somewhat uh, humorously referred to uh, and affectionately referred to Isaiah as the fifth gospel because it's so full of Jesus. So we love the book of Isaiah because it is a book that brings hope. But what is hope? We can talk about it pretty plainly, but we don't necessarily define it. Thankfully, the Bible gives us a definition of what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. It uses hope in its definition for faith. It is almost always, hope is almost always used to speak of the anticipation of a future reality. So when you hope, you're looking or longing for something that hasn't happened yet. And when you hope, you're, you're among the hopeful people, then you're a future-oriented people. You're looking for something. And yet, to be future-oriented doesn't mean that you're a pessimist about the present, saying, well, the future is going to be much better than the way things are now. But uh, we're not futurists when we're hopeful people. To be anticipating the future, you need to understand the present. Be like the man of Issachar, having understanding of the times. We might even consider them hopeful people. And hopeful people are not put down by the pejorative saying that you're so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. Right? On the contrary, hopeful ones are so heavenly-minded that they are of earthly good. So what does hope do for us? How do we get it? Well, I want to give us an idea of it by getting you to think something or feel something. There's an experiment, scientific experiment, and it's a cruel one to say the least, that illustrates how profoundly transforming even the sense of hope can be. During the 1950s, Kurt Richter, a Denver native, Harvard graduate and scientist with Johns Hopkins University, conducted a profound and, by today's standards, incredibly cruel experiment on rats. Dr. Richter placed rats into buckets of water, and he timed their ability to swim. Rats, who are apparently known for their strong swimming skills, lasted an average of 15 minutes before they drowned. In the second experiment, Richter rescued the rats when he saw them beginning to stop swimming and when they would sink. He rescued them before they drowned. When he took them out, he dried them off, Gave them a short period of rest, 
And then when they were dry and rested, he put them back in. And Richter put them back into the water. However, this time he timed them again, and he saw a substantial change in their behavior. The rescued rats swam longer than 15 minutes. In fact, they swam for nearly 60 hours. That's two and a half days. Psychologists often cite this as an article as evidence of the power of hope. Now, we don't need scientific experiments to prove these things. We have God's Word, but God's creation also reveals things in consistency with His Word. General revelation and special revelation go together. And here's a piece of general revelation. Even a rat, when given hope, will last for days when they should be dead. I stress the theme of hope to prepare you to hear God's word. This is not some mechanical prophecy spewed out by some man with camel's hair and a beard and eating locusts and honey. This is God's revelation delivered to his people in a time of need. And not just for a day, but a word, but the word of the Lord abides forever, so it's a word that's timeless. It was meant for its day, but it's also meant for us, even this day. And what is this message in this context? Simply this, pay attention to the stump. That'll be our first point, the stump. We'll also look at the spirit and the signal. The stump, the spirit, and the signal will be our points this morning. So why a stump? Notice all this language about trees in verse, verse 1. The shoot, the stump, the branch, the roots. The word root shows up again in verse 10. We also have fruit. When you have this stump announced to us, it is it's coming on the heels of chapter 10. Always remember when you're reading any literature, but particularly the Bible, context is king. So what's the context? Well, chapter 10 is the context. God has promised to bring heavy judgment against the wicked Assyrians because they have captured and treated his people horribly, and yet God also sent them to do this task, to punish them. So we see that in chapter 10, verse 12, if you want to turn there and read with me. When the Lord had finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And then he has more to say. Look at verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? He's saying the Assyrians are just an axe in his hand. And yet they're very proud of their good cutting. The image is one of a forest being hewed down by God with an axe. And he leaves not one tree standing, including the Israelites. He spares no trees. So, so much for a sermon about hope. And what is a stump? A stump is the end of a tree, right? The tree has been cut down. The tree is essentially no more. We don't even call it a tree anymore. We call it a stump. And why does the text say, you know, something more positive? A, kind, a pine cone shall burst forth with life out of the fires of judgment and bring newness, etc., etc. Or something about a seed? Something? No, a stump. Uh, one of my neighbors to the west of me, we have a tree on our line. I might even be within our property line, I'm not sure. But I ignore it and act like it's not my tree. Uh, it got pretty big and tall. It had some kind of not good fruit on it. Um, shows you how much I know about trees. And it had lots of branches going out. Lots of branches. And it shed 
on both yards, kind of in a slight hillside as things go down, downward in the neighborhood. And uh, last fall, the, I wasn't paying attention. I think I came home one day and every branch had been cut off. Uh, and so it was down to the trunk and then all of these branches sticking up in different places and they were just cut off and flat on top. So it was stump-like, yet it had all the branches around it. And I thought, okay, well, why don't he take out the whole thing? Um, oh well, makes it easier. I don't have to deal with those branches when I'm mowing. And then spring came, and all of these shoots came out of every single one of those branches. And so I learned something. The tree was not dead, uh, and now it's having a new, uh, a new lease on life. And so... Uh, that's a lesson about stumps. Stumps don't have to mean deadness and the end of something. They can simply just be the most extreme form of pruning. And so this presents us with a question. What is God up to in his providence? If he wanted to make me happy, why did he cut all the trees down? Right? I don't know if the Israelites are very happy people being in captivity by the Assyrians and also being slaughtered and mistreated. If he wanted to make me have hope, why did he remove everything? Why am I suffering just like the evildoers seem to suffer? Or better yet, why do evildoers not actually even seem to get their comeuppance? Although chapter 10 is about the evildoers getting their comeuppance. Abraham could have said the same thing when he died in the land of Canaan and he didn't have any of it. Joseph could have said the same thing when he died in Egypt and never returned to his homeland which his family never owned. Moses could have said the same thing when he stood on Mount Pisgah and he looked at the land and he was told that he would never be allowed to enter it. Their complaints would have been misplaced. They died in the Lord and knew exactly what they hoped for when they died. They, Hebrews tells us that they sought a city whose maker and builder was God. They knew the greater reality that was yet to come. They hoped in something more than what their eyes could see. So Isaiah comes along after the land has been inherited and the kingdom has been built. And he says, it's all going to be torn down. Again, what is God's plan? He talks about a stump of Jesse, a root of Jesse. A shoot will come forth from the stump of Jesse. But who is Jesse? Why are we talking about Jesse? Well, if you know your Bible, Jesse's an important character because he's the father of the great King David. And so, perhaps David is the fulfillment of prophecy, as David is the shoot that comes forth literally from Jesse. Well, no, this is already after David, uh, hundreds of years after David. And notice all these verb tenses throughout the chapter, starting in verse 1, going all the way through. Shall come forth shall bear fruit, shall rest upon him. Shall, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge. Shall, shall, shall dwell, shall lie down. There's many, many shalls, right? It's a way of saying that something has not yet happened. It's all future-oriented. This was written 2,500 years ago. A lot has happened in two and a half millennia. And this passage is about hope because not all of this has been fulfilled. But the word of the Lord, but the word hope, as we're talking all about hope, the word hope's not even in this text, but the concept is. So this future 
orientation actually speaks of many good things. If you notice those familiar words in verse 6, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you hope for that world today? How does the Bible talk about hope? Well, I did a little word study on hope because I noticed it's not, I get the sense that hope is in here, but the word's not in here. And I looked that up in a concordance and the word hope occurs 150 times in the English Bible. Half the time in the Old Testament, half the time in the New Testament. It's convenient. But then you remember that the Old Testament is three times bigger than the New Testament. So when you're reading through the New Testament, you should come across the word hope three times as often. Which means the New Testament is, simply put, a more hopeful book. Also makes sense. It's got a lot more about Jesus right there in flesh and blood. There's a lot less shadow and far more substance. But not only does it occur... 75 or so times in the Old Testament also never occurs in the Pentateuch. And then in those historical books from Joshua to Esther, it only shows up two times. So very, so you read through half the Old Testament, and it's like the word hope hardly ever shows up. And then you get to a certain book, and you get the word hope 18 times. And that would be Job. Hope in the midst of suffering. So when you see a stump, don't think it as the end of something, but as an opportunity for a new beginning. God has chopped it down, but God is making something new out of the old. Behold, I am making all things new. God will bring forth this shoot, this branch from the roots that will bear fruit. How do we know this? Well, that's our next point. We have talked about the stump. Let's consider the spirit. This shoot will have the spirit of the Lord rest upon him. Verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This spirit is the spirit of the Lord, which is the Holy Spirit, the spirit which applies the work that Christ accomplishes. So the spirit does things in scripture. The Nicene Creed says that the spirit is the Lord and giver of life. The spirit was there at creation. All things were made through the word by the spirit. The Spirit is a creating Spirit. He gives life. Dry bones take on flesh. The virgin conceives. Those who are dead in their trespasses receive life in the Spirit. Now, just because we are talking about the Spirit and spiritual things does not mean we're also dealing with mystery. There's no mystery here. The Spirit does not just create, but also speaks. Second Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit reveals this is emphasized with the parallelism that we see here in verse 2, or these words that describe what the Spirit does. There's no mystery here. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. He is endowed with the Spirit, and we are told that there are implications for this anointing of the Spirit. Assyria was judged in chapter 10. Now from the stump comes one who will also judge, and his judgments will be right and true. His judgments will be just. How is that described? He can close his eyes and he can plug his ears and he can judge rightly every time. 
Now, I would expect that I'd want a judge who has very good eyesight and very good ears to see the evidence and listen to the arguments and sift through these things and decide what is right, but that's not the judge we're given. We're told that he doesn't need eyes, he doesn't need ears, because he will judge with righteousness and faithfulness. He hears what is unheard, he sees what is unseen, he knows the secret and invisible things that lie hidden. Man judges by the outward appearance, but it's God who judges the heart. And another prophet, Jeremiah, will say that the heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Well, God can. And so he will judge with righteousness and with equity, and he will render his decisions. This shoot from the stump is clothed with things that we are not clothed with. I've been talking about hope, but perhaps this judgment is not so much good news as it is questionable news. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. If he judges rightly, then I know what I deserve. Perhaps you know what you deserve. If you know what you deserve, then this is good news. Because if the Spirit is the one who will judge rightly, the Spirit is also promised to be at work in those who believe. Because the Spirit is the one who will judge rightly. Jesus, when he was on earth, said, and when the Spirit comes, John 16, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Conviction of sin is the first step in repentance. You cannot turn from sin if you don't even know what it is. Conviction of sin is the work of the Spirit. It's not your job to convict yourself of sin or to convict anyone of sin. It's your job to be receptive to the Spirit's work in you. So this is perhaps the most effective thing you can pray for in evangelism. Conviction of sin. It's also probably the best prayer you can pray for your own sanctification. In my personal experience, the Lord answers it very quickly. Don't worry. It doesn't take long. The Spirit is a spirit that is upon the shoot. The Spirit will bring forth fruit, and this is how we develop hope. Right? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and yet patience makes no sense without hope. Why, why be patient with the kids? They take time to grow and mature. Why be patient with seeds? They take time. Why be patient with people? It takes time for the Spirit to do His work. Why be patient? And, and by the way, He might be doing more work on you being patient than on whoever it is you're needing to be patient with. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. 2 Timothy 2, 24. So if you find me to be somebody who's not patient and who is quarrelsome, be finding me to be disqualifying myself as one of God's servants. God has been long-suffering with you and with me. The Spirit fosters hope within us, and the Spirit has been patiently at work with us. So the Spirit is at work, resting upon this, this shoot from the stump. And it's nice to talk about the Spirit and talk about how the Spirit makes things better. It's also nice to talk about prophecy of this shoot from the stump, but Perhaps maybe it feels a little standoffish, maybe a little distant. 
But I needed to hear this as I studied this chapter and read it again, read it again, and read it again. You need to hear this. This is not just about a Christmas prophecy or the continuing work of the Spirit. We all need to be reminded of this, but this is personal. What makes this personal is this is about a person. All right, this is our, this is our third point. The person is the signal. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Verse 2 also indicated this. Who is this he that we are reading about? Right? This is about a person. It's kind of a, a jump from the metaphor of the tree language. But when I was studying this, I almost made the biggest mistake you can make when studying the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the New, it doesn't matter. You always want to ask, does, this, does the Bible talk about this passage somewhere else in the Bible? So this is the Old Testament. Does the New Testament talk about this passage? Yep, sure enough it does. And when the New Testament talks about a passage, you say, is there an Old Testament somewhere? Scripture interprets Scripture. And one of the clearest ways it does this is through this Old Testament, New Testament dialogue, as it were. So it goes both ways. Romans 15, 12. So it makes my job a whole lot easier when I can just go to the New Testament and say, well, here it is, and here's Paul's interpretation of this passage. So it's the relevant passage. Romans 15, 12. Hear this, and you can look down at verse 10 of Isaiah 11, and you can listen and compare. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So Paul goes right to the point of the matter, and he says, this is about hope, even though the word hope doesn't show up here. In the past, I've been confused, if not frustrated, by verses like this, because it's mostly the same, but it doesn't take long to figure out. Paul uses the word hope. The word hope isn't in here. He uses the word rule. The word rule isn't in here. It's helpful to know that Gentiles and people is the same thing. Nations and Gentiles is the same thing, but it's a little bit different. Why is it different? It'll take probably too long to explain, but simply put, Paul's not quoting from the Hebrew. He's quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Now, you might say that's a little bit of a conundrum. Why wouldn't he quote from the Hebrew? Well, this is the point he wanted to make about hope. Romans 15 is all about telling the Jews and the Gentiles, you both need to hope in Christ. And here's my Bible verse. He had three more verses before this, but this is his, uh, his summary verse. He goes, Psalms, Deuteronomy, Psalms, then boom, Isaiah. And he, wa- he wants to make it about the Gentiles are going to hope in this root of Jesse, which is Christ. And so what he's trying to tell the Jews is, you have your God, and you're saying, no, 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 Jesus isn't my God. And he's saying, yes, Jesus is your God. This is how he fulfills the scripture. And to the Gentiles, they say, yeah, you've got your God, but we worship lots of gods, the Gentiles. And he said, no, you need to put all those gods aside. This is the one that you're going to hope in. So we can, with this verse, he can speak to the Jew and to the Gentile right out of the Old Testament. And this God is the God of hope. But hope is not a feeling. Feelings come and go. Hope is not an idea. Ideas only last so long. Hope is a person. God is the source of hope because 
in Christ, God is the personal revelation of hope itself. So all this hope, talk about hope is great news, or perhaps maybe you're thinking it, but you don't want to say it, but okay, fine, hope is a person, but people have failed me. My kids have rejected me or neglected me. I have failed my kids. My parents have proven to be very disappointing. My political heroes have turned out to be in it for themselves and betrayed my hopes or trust. Pastors have shocked me with their failure. Nice church-going people have said nice things but have totally lacked substance. My neighbors ignore me. The list goes on. People err and fail and fall. Scripture says Jesus was made like us in every way, yet without sin. This is the Bible's way of saying Jesus won't fail. You can put your hope in him because he says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. How do you know that? We all suffer. We are all suffering. The only thing more diverse than the human race is the diversity of suffering within it, caused by it to one another. Christ does not take away suffering. Actually, you will suffer for his name's sake. Believing in him can actually bring more suffering from a worldly perspective. And non-Christians don't get away with not suffering. We all suffer. But with Christ, the one you can put your hope in, you have a companion for the journey. One who suffers with you because he has suffered for you. He said, take up your cross and follow me. He can say that to you because he has already borne the heavier part of the load. It's like in Pilgrim's Progress. After they go to Vanity Fair, Christian and faithful are persecuted and suffer at the Vanity Fair, and faithful is even executed. Christian and faithful suffer. And then Christian is released, and he's on his journey, and he is now alone as he journeys. And then he has a new companion come alongside him. Hopeful. Hopeful saw faithful suffer for Christ and hopeful put his hope in Christ and then joined Christian to be his companion on the journey. And hopeful was encouraging Christian because hopeful told Christian that there are others who are going to come after us. It can feel a little bit lonely on this journey, but even the suffering, the Lord's going to work it for his purposes to bring others along on this pilgrimage. And so... Hopeful was aptly named. So Christ is the one that the Gentiles have put their hope in as you find yourself here this morning, whether you feel like you fit in a more Jewish category or a more Gentile category. I imagine most of us are Gentiles. This is directly handed down by the Apostle Paul as a word for you. This is the one you should put your hope in. He's a shoot that's come forth from the stump of Jesse. He came forth at Christmas, born of the Virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, brought forth, and his name shall be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Amen. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we praise you for your word, for it is a word that has not left us alone and has not left us without a companion, but it is the light unto our path. And so we pray that you would not let our feet slip, but you would make us have strong ankles as we journey in this pilgrimage. 
Stir in us, O Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit to work hope in us. For you are the God of hope, and in Christ do we put our hope. Hear us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.